Okay, good. It's still working. All right. Everything's going. Test, test. I'll be deleting this, but this is just to give me a lead-in. All right, so first thing I want to talk about today is MLA formatting. If you've gone through 1010 and 1020 here, how many of you have? You should have. Because they're, but if you have, then you, then you know MLA formatting because that's what was used. I'm going to be linking you guys on Canvas the Purdue OWL website because Purdue OWL, OWL is their online writing lab. It has the most up-to-date MLA style guide, APA style guide, and Chicago Manual style guide. And frankly, because I could have you buy the fund the handbook of MLA style, but that's it's almost $200 for a book of style that's going to be outdated by the end of the year as the new style guide comes out in January. So the Purdue OWL website is the most up-to-date. It also has the most up-to-date handling for how to cite web pages because that is ever-changing in what we look for. So you'll have that, which will have how do you make, how do you structure papers, not so much with the nuts and bolts, but what do you have in your heading? What should your title look like? You know, do you indent your paragraphs? Yes, you do. This is not business writing. In English classes, we indent. All you have to do is hit the tab button once for indenting. And that's, that's a feature of writing an essay. Now, if you were looking to publish, you'd have to go back and turn those into simply spacebar, 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 spacebar. Because publishers don't like the tab because it looks funny when it converts from even a PDF to the files that they use for aligning pages. So, but for our purposes, tab indent the start of each paragraph. Beyond that, some things that a lot of people don't realize, one space after a period, and these are things you'll have on Purdue, but I want to go over them in general because I want to make sure that people are aware of it. I know when I was going through school we were told two spaces, that's from typewriters because Typewriter typefaces look different than they do on a computer. We're not using typewriters anymore. I'm not cruel in making you use a typewriter. But with computers, one space. Also, we will be using parenthetical citations for MLA. I know some people will look because, yes, you can do footnotes in MLA. Don't. Just don't do footnotes. Footnotes work better for Chicago Manual of Style. Parenthetical or in-text citations work better for MLA and APA. These are just things that tend to work better and are easier. So, as you know, with a parenthetical, you will have your text. This is your text. Then you will have last name and then a number. Period goes after the end punctuate, the end, the closing parentheses. The last name is the author's last name, and the number is the page number. There are no commas in MLA citation. That's Chicago. But, and these are just reminders because I want to make sure this is clear. For This is for prose. If it's poetry, like say you're citing Beowulf, you would just simply have 397 to 412. Line numbers. Poetry, we cite line numbers. 
when we start talking about Beowulf on Monday, I will give you more specifics for citing Germanic poetry because it is a very specific poetic style. Anglo-Saxon, Old Norse, Old High German. There's a very specific way we cite that, and I'll talk about that then. But poetry, line numbers. And of course, especially early on, we're not going to have authors for things because we don't know who they were for most of them. And no, Anonymous didn't write everything. But, and this, this might come up later, it might not. When citing scripture, book, chapter, verse. This is something that might come up during the research, during the research paper, depending on the, the, your primary artifact that you're analyzing. So I want to make sure that that's in your forefront. But this is how parenthetical citations will look in general. We can talk more specific later, but when you, if you have a specific question. But that's what I really want to go over just in general with MLA. I'm not going to give you a crash course in it because 1010 and 1020 were basically a course in learning MLA and how to write essays. So, with MLA out of the way, the really big thing I want to hit is plagiarism. That wonderful thing that no one likes to talk about, but is sort of that specter. And I kind of want to dispel some of any fear you might have because I know when I was taking... Uh, back in the day, my school it was 100 and it was 110 and 120. That's how we did. We didn't have we didn't have four digits back then. We only had three. Four digits came about in every other school in the, in the state at the time. We had to be different. But my composition teachers put such a fear of plagiarism with just how easy it was to plagiarize how much you could easily get in trouble. And plagiarism isn't difficult to do accidentally. And that's why I do want to go over that. I will probably next week bring a plagiarism contract for you guys to sign, so show that you understand. And we'll talk a little bit, and we can talk a little bit about it more then, if necessary. But let's say you're quoting something, and, it's a, and, you, and you're very clear, but you forget to do this. You forget to attribute the quote and give a citation. Technically, that's plagiarism. If you have, if you have, if you do what we call, I call the elementary school mistake, you have your bibliography at the end that lists all your sources, but you don't put the citations in the text. Technically, that's plagiarism. So you can. Those are what I call accidental plagiarisms, because you're not intending to. You're very clear that you're quoting something. You're very clear that you got your information from other places, but you don't put it where it needs to be so that your reader can easily connect what's from where. And while you might say, well, this, is, this isn't going to be like that su a super long paper, maybe 10, 12 pages, it might not seem to matter, but when you get to longer documents, like, say, a senior-level research paper, a master's thesis, a book, a dissertation. Sloppy habits, small scale, lead to sloppy habits, large scale. And so that's why I'm making sure we go over accidental plagiarism. Then there are the easy plagiarisms to spot. Copying and pasting sources 
without even having quotation marks or anything else. Sometimes that is accidental. I've learned in from teaching 1010 and 1020 that students will, well, I've got this one. I, I only have one source. Yes, but you didn't cite. You didn't tell me where the quote begins and where the quote ends. I know that in Canvas because if you just copy and paste text, Canvas changes the color of the font when the teacher reads it. So it will be a different color for me than what it was on your screen, and I'll be able to tell. So these are so... That's, that's how I can find these things now. It's a lot easier than when I first started teaching. We didn't have all these tools. But that is a very common way to plagiarize. Still somewhat unintentional, but you are still just copying a block of text and without any attribution anywhere, claiming it as your own. And it's a problem. Copying and pasting can also be done like a larger scale. I had a student for a five-page paper just copy three of those pages directly from a Wikipedia article. Now, it was easy for me to tell. I'll tell you why. One, it's the only section of the paper that was grammatically correct. <laughs> Two, the font was different. Three, you know how Wikipedia nouns are hyperlinks? Mm -hmm. But when you copy and paste, that becomes an underline? They make, didn't take any of those hyperlinks out, so all these random nouns were underlined. Oh God, that's, that's not even, he even tried to go ahead and hide that he plagiarized. Oh, he said he wasn't plagiarizing. He said he didn't know it counted. Oh God. <laughs> and that was one of those fun moments, but it's still, that is, that's what people think of when they think of plagiarism. They think of someone who makes it that obvious. But it can be as simple as having a quote from a source that you just don't attribute, or you forget to attribute. Yeah, you don't intend to do it, but you still did it. And judging intention is not something I can easily do when I see a product. Well, you can ask, if I ask you, did you mean to plagiarize that? What are you going to tell me? You'd be a fool to tell me that that may be the truth, it may not be the truth. You would be a fool to tell me otherwise. And so you're going to, you're going to, no, I didn't mean to. And I have no way of knowing for certain if you're telling me the truth. And so we have to act as if the intent was there. And because of what plagiarism is, it is the taking of someone else's ideas and claiming they are your own. It's, one of those things that the easy way to explain the ethics of it to students are, let's say you work really hard on a take-home exam, but you forget to put your name on it, and you drop it before you're going to turn in, and, and, and the person next to you swipes it and just puts their name on it. How would you feel? Not good. Not good. Why? Very peeved. Because it was your work. Very peeved. Why? Because that was, that was work that I put in, it's on the side of, hey, this is mine. Work you put in. And so when you plagiarize, you do that to someone else. Sure, it's probably someone you don't know, but you're still taking someone else's work. And with research, uh, if you've ever had me for 1010, 1020, speech 1200, you can, you're going to get this lecture. So I'll give you a little bit of background. 
Research documents take a while to produce. Not just doing the research, that can take years. But once the manuscript is drafted and then submitted, because if you're writing fiction, you can submit your manuscript to as many publishers as you want at the same time. That's, well, once you have an agent, that's what your agent does for you. And then you choose from any offers you get. In academic publishing, you submit to one publisher at a time for review. And the editor, who is doing the work voluntarily, sends it out to reviewers who do the work voluntarily. And then they determine if it's good, if it's making a new and meaningful contribution, if the writing is up to snuff, and just before you guys get scared, the actual standard for good writing in academia is way lower than it is in 1010. It's basically, is the grammar correct, and can someone who has extreme specialist knowledge understand it? So it's not for the general public, which is a problem. It's also why I've taken to publishing only on open source journals, so that way public can actually read my public, my work. But this takes time because all these people are volunteers. They're professors. They're researchers themselves. The average turnaround from submission of a manuscript to acceptance is two years. And then because academic publications are either once every three months or once every four months, it can take another two to three years for it to be printed. So. This takes time. It's a lot of work, and you wait, and you wait for that line to put on your CV. As a scholar, you don't get paid. You don't get paid for it. You get a CV line that allows you to keep your job and maybe get a promotion. But it's a lot of work. You spend time. I know for my last publication, which should actually be printed by December, uh, which it's been, it was in review for five and a half years because the editor quit, then the assistant editor quit, then two of the reviewers quit. And they were the reviewers who specialized in Anglo-Saxon poetry. So, just had to sit and wait, and wait, and wait, and wait. And they only, and this online open access journal only publishes one issue a year. So, it takes a while, but it, and it took me about a year and a half to write the piece. And that was after six months of, of doing the research before I realized I had something worthy of even trying to publish. So it, it took a while. It's a, labor, it's a labor of love, of passion. And to see someone just take credit for that when you've done the work, it hurts. And so while, well, you're not losing money, no, but it's, it's mine. And I work. It's like... If someone, if you did a take-home exam and someone stole it, that was yours. You did the work. You have earned the right to be proud of it, and someone's taking it and saying, no, it's mine now. Plagiarism is theft. But the one thing we don't think about is self-plagiarism. You can plagiarize yourself in all the ways I've just mentioned, forgetting to cite yourself. Uh, anthropologists and folklorists always make jokes about um, Edifos Levy. He was a French anthropologist and folklorist who's famous for citing himself. Often, seven to twelve different works of his in a single paper. 
as I said here and here and here and here. But he's reached that level of respect and fame and prestige that he can do that. But if you forget to cite yourself, but quote yourself, that's plagiarism. If you've turned the paper into another class, especially with, since we use Turnitin and whatever they've rebranded Turnitin at, as this, this year, because we use that so we, we have a database of, of papers that have been submitted and how they compare to other works. That helps us find out if you've submitted the same work without making changes. And not small changes, the changes have to be significant. So you can't just change a pronoun here and there, change a verb here and there, and it be good. You have to make significant changes to the text and to the argument for it to not count as self-plagiarism. It doesn't happen often, but it, I mean, I had it happen here one semester where a student submitted the same paper. Apparently, the student failed the class with someone else, took me the next semester, and then submitted the same paper again. No changes whatsoever. The student was also absent the day I went over plagiarism, so, oh, I didn't know. That's another reason why I'm recording my lecture, so you can definitely know what counts as plagiarism. And it is one of those things that I want to make sure that we talk about because the three strikes in your out policy here isn't just in this class. When, if, you play, if this is your first plagiarism, I send word to student services, it goes in your file. If you get accused one time in another class, that becomes your second plagiarism. And so, well, I've only plagiarized once in this class. Yes, but this is the second time you've been caught. So now you fail that new class. It happens again, you're out of school. If you're in grad school, it's one strike and you're gone. It happened to a guy in my program for my master's. He, played, he took some of the big names in the field and just didn't cite them. And claimed the work was his own. He got caught because he chose to, he chose to steal from well-known and widely read scholars. He was kicked out of the program, and when that gets done, because academic fields are very small communities, he had nearly get into another grad school because no one wants to take someone who steals the ideas of others. It looks bad for your program if you have people doing that. I've seen faculty lose tenure over accusations that while later deemed unfounded, still cost them tenure. It cost them rank and promotion and pay to be accused of it. It's a serious, serious offense. And so it is something that we do have to think about. And I want to make sure I give it its gravitas, but I also don't want you to think that it's something you're just going to do and to be hyper-vigilant because the fear of plagiarism led me to oversight. I cited almost every sentence I thought needed it. And so I oversighted. And so, and that's, as I was told, that is, a, that is a writing sin worse than simply plagiarizing. Because I made the text unreadable by breaking it up with too many citations. And that's something that we need that needs to be worked on because it's not easy to know where that where that line is. 
and it's different for every type of essay. And one of, that's one of the reasons why, for your big research paper, I'm going to have you do it piece by piece. You're going to turn in a, a bibli an annotated bibliography. You're going to turn in a rough draft, so that way I can make sure that all of this is in order before you go into the final, so that way you don't have to worry about this. Now, all of these things are designed to help you see, and I can say, okay, this is oversighted. These are all from the same source. Just have one citation that covers all the pages. You know, it's things like that. I don't want you to feel that it's something you should live in fear of, because there's a 99.7% chance that you will never plagiarize. But I want you to be aware of the different ways it can happen, and how it can happen even, it can happen unintentionally. Often, what that tells me is, you didn't edit. You finished it the last minute, and you didn't have time to go back and check your work. So, as someone who has been an editor, that's one reason I want, I'm making sure you turn in a rough draft early enough, so that way I can, I can make sure that these problems aren't there. So, this is my spiel on plagiarism. Do you guys have any questions on plagiarism? I know I'm moving fairly quickly. I'll probably, if I can find it, I have a PowerPoint that goes into much more detail. I'll post that on Canvas for you guys to have a look at. So, any questions? Okay, eins, zwei, drei, gut. All right. Let's move on to the last thing I want to talk about in general, interpretation slash criticism of literature. This is something that, I mean, I spent two years taking different classes on, just on theory of how to do it. And there are a lot of them. And they go in and they go out of fashion, just like clothes and music and food and art. But in general, the whole purpose of interpretation and critique of literature is to basically say, you're a reader, what did you get out of the text? What did you find meaningful? What do you think the author, the authors, what do you think they wanted you to know? Think back to the question I posed at the end of the first day. Literature is the use of stories to answer the question, what does it mean to be a human in my culture at this particular point in time and geographical location? So what do we learn about the author's culture? And that's something to think about. And as you look at the older material, it's more challenging for a couple of reasons. One, the culture was so alien compared to our own that for most of us it's a very different mindset. A mindset we probably don't understand and really can never fully understand. Two, we're reading in translation. Though I don't expect any of you to know Old English. I spent three and a half years in graduate school learning and studying the language. But when you read a translation, you are, by essence, reading an interpretation. Because most languages, even Old English to contemporary English, is not always one-to-one. -one. I will be pointing out some of those things to you as we study, so that you can see that, in a sense, when you read these translations, you are, you are interpreting someone else's interpretation. And so it makes it harder to really, if, they're, if, they're, if we can't trust the interpreter to be accurate in what they're presenting to us, it makes it harder to really understand what's being talked about. 
And if you've ever looked at Victorian translations of things like Old Norse mythology, or any type of mythology, because of the Victorian strictness of morality, a lot of the actual fun stuff of these ancient texts is, is turned into a euphemism or just glossed over, because they didn't want people reading these salation. Ancient myths had no problem shying away from sex, from violence, from poop jokes. I mean, this was this, they told about life as it was for these people. But the Victorians found all of those things distasteful. And so translators felt that they had a moral obligation to clean up these stories. And so if you look at a Victorian translation of, say, the Elder or the Poetic Edda versus, say, a more contemporary translation, you're going to see two very different sets of stories because that which was distasteful to the Victorian morality was more or less censored. So with translation, we can often learn more about the culture of the translator than about the culture of the original text. And so these are things that make interpreting the text challenging and why we have to do a little bit more digging than we often might think we have to do. As we move toward modern English, Shakespeare is modern English. It's not how we talk anymore, but it is modern English. That is the last time the language cha really changed structure and phonology in a meaningful linguistic way. And so we still need people to help us understand some of the different ways of speaking. This, as, well, when we get to reading Marlowe, because instead of Shakespeare, we're going to read some Kit Marlowe. He's my favorite of the Elizabethan English dramatist. He was also a spy. He had a cooler life. He died in a barroom brawl about paying for a tab. So, you know, he, he had the fun life. But the Elizabethan, you see this in Shakespeare all the time, the I bite my thumb at thee, which is, it seems stupid, but that is the Elizabethan ex equivalent of flipping somebody off. That is what that means when you see that. The person who bites their thumb at someone is shooting someone the bird. So if we don't know that, we can we can miss that. You know, this isn't some sort of. This is a guy who's mad, and he's showing it with a, with a physical gesture. And we often think about just how. And and leading to that, I want to get into the question of high versus low, and. But I can't interpret this because I'm not trained. And this is art. This is literature. William Shakespeare wrote specifically for what were called the groundlings. There are people who are on the floor of the theater, standing room only. The seats were reserved for rich people. And they was basically, it was a round. So in the center, right, right in front of the stage, would be the groundlings. would be standing up. Around the edges would be the, the seats and the balconies for the wealthy because you know, they, they couldn't associate with the poor people who were, who were probably stinky and diseased, literally. But, and the rich were covering their stench with expensive imported perfumes. And also their disease with expensive imported perfumes and clothes. So for their opportunity, they're not stinky for disease, really. Yes, it's just like the rich today. Nothing has really changed on that front. <laughs> but, he wrote for the groundlings because they would often, because fresh food was brought in and served. Theater was very different until the 19th century. 
because fresh, and we're talking fresh food, like fresh vegetables, the groundlings would throw tomatoes and vegetables if they didn't enjoy the performance. So, well, I can't interpret Shakespeare. That's literature. It's art. It's filled with dick jokes. It's filled with sex. It is, he is basically, if you take George Lucas and Quentin Tarantino, <laughs> it's, there is art to it. It's beautiful language. But it was written for the masses. And so, yes, if you can interpret, if you can, if you can make comments on a Tarantino film, you can make comments on a Shakespearean tragedy. Now, I mentioned how theater changed. This is your trivia for the week. Theater changed, and the, the person who changed theater is Preckhard Wagner. Because Wagner was, among other things, a jerk. An arrogant jerk. Brilliant composer. I will not doubt that. But he was an arrogant jerk. He didn't just write the music for his operas. He wrote the libretto. He handled the costumes. He designed the sets. He, he decided on the lighting effects. And you know what you were going to do when you went to his opera? You were going to pay attention. So the groundling area was taken away. The balcony, all that, became basically what we now call theater seating. He, he made a specific opera house in Bayreuth that had theater seating or stadium seating because you were all going to face forward. Opera was going to be in the dark. Only lights were going to be on the stage. And you are going to pay attention to what he did and tell him how great he was. And that's when theater started to change. And that's why theater moved away from being something where everyone went, because even before Wagner, everyone went to the opera. It was a public spectacle and an event. And then it became for the elites. I think we should take all of this back for everybody because everyone should enjoy art. Because theater, opera, musicals, drama, fiction, poetry, these are the expressions of what it means to be human, and they shouldn't be reserved in the province of a specific group of people. But that's, that's my two cents on that, and that's where these things changed. So, but that being said, and you'll find, I'll probably be mentioning various schools of, of criticism and interpretation throughout the year, or the semester, not here. It feels like it's going to feel like a year because of all the other restrictions. But there, I will be talking about a lot of it. What it comes down to for me is when you're learning to interpret literature, can you support what you what you think the text is saying with evidence from the text itself? Is there enough to make that claim? If you can do that, great. You don't have to have the same opinion as some fancy schmancy critic or some elite scholar. I mean, I'll, I'll be talking about it more when we the end of Beowulf, but the paper that I'm waiting to finally get print has me telling two of the biggest Beowulf scholars that they're wrong. One of those being J.R.R. Tolkien himself. So, Tolkien posed a question that he, and he gave his answer. I found textual evidence to that some of it because Tolkien didn't have the knowledge at the time because we uncovered certain things linguistically, but I found evidence that he was wrong. And it's one of those things that you can differ with the big guns. If you can support it, I'll hold it as valid. 
that's how I that's how I handle every type of thing. If you can support the client, great. If you can't, try again. Same thing if, if you if, if when you finish, why well, didn't like this? Okay, why didn't you like it? It sucked. Why didn't it suck? Why? What's what about it sucked? And that leads to discussing with literature and what's called the canon. The accepted great stories that we all the ones they put in your textbook that you apparently you can get for ECL upstairs, and that you can get free online. Now, a lot of people, and this is something I've come to understand, the canon is this, was decided a long time ago, about 100 years ago, by a very specific group of scholars, all of whom were cisgender, heterosexual, white European men. So if you're not part of that group, you might find that the stories in the canon don't always appeal to you. You're going to find, that's why you're going to find me not just using the textbook. Now, the book we have does have a lot of women writers, and I'm glad to see that because there are a lot of great British women writers who we often don't know. The second thing you're going to be reading in this class is by a woman. It's a story of a werewolf. So, yeah, before we move to October, we're going to talk about werewolves. Because... These are things that, because also because it's a very transitional piece in the original, it's Anglo-Norman. So it's post-Norman conquest, but not quite Chaucerian Middle English. So it's that, trend, it's that linguistic transition, and it shows the influence of French language, French literature, and French ideologies. But I'm going to be bringing some different things like that in, because the canon should be reflective of who was writing. And sadly, for the longest time, the rich were the only ones who could afford an education and learn to write. Specifically, the clergy and the highest ranking nobility. And when we get to the Middle Ages, I'll be talking about manuscript culture, illuminated manuscripts, and how these things looked, and how these things were presented at court. Because it's really fascinating to see how these manuscripts, these illuminated manuscripts with pictures and gold foil lettering and sometimes red lettering or rubrication, as it's called. They weren't just there, but they were passed around. They were held up. It was sort of like almost a slideshow of, here's how pretty this text is because it was expensive to make and so you wanted to show it off. But um, I'll show you some pictures of this stuff because it's beautiful. And... Some, and if something happens, because I know there's talks at LSU about some of these come, being, coming here for a display, if there's talks and it happens, I'll let you guys know. But LSU does have, in the Hill Memorial Library, a lot of manuscript facsimiles. They're not the originals, but they look just like them and they're the same size. And these were, you know, these were big, these were like the size of from, from my neck all the way down to my waist. These are huge documents because they had pictures and they and people wanted that. And, we can, and there are people who make entire careers studying some of the weird little pictures in the margins. The, the rabbits who attack people or the weird depictions of cats and snails. Again, I'll be showing you some of this stuff because you'll sit there and go, did they not know what these animals looked like? Yes, they did but the depictions were meant to be symbolic. And, and what those symbols are, are things that scholars argue over to this day. 
So, but we're going to be talking about all of that. And I really want you guys to get a sense that you can interpret, you can make claims. You're going to learn more. We're going to, I will tell you some things before we start looking at Beowulf on Monday. I'll be going over Anglo-Saxon culture, the Anglo-Saxon language, Anglo-Saxon poetics. Talking a little about the history as well so you get a sense of who these people were. And then we'll start talking about the first 499 lines of the poem. Yes, we stop at 499 because that is where there's a really good break in the narrative. And, and a new, basically a new, that's where a scene transition happens. And so, that's where we're going to go. Don't read too far ahead beyond that because there's a section that I'm, I've completely blanked on, on the line numbers for the section, so I'm trying to find it again. But while it's a beautiful piece of poetry, if you skip this section, it's not going to make a big, it's not going to make a big bit of difference. So I'm trying to make sure you don't have to read that one section. But if you want to read the poem, go ahead and finish reading the poem. Just don't watch any of the movies because they're all bad. Yeah, I can I attest to that. And I'm going to try not to talk about them because I can't talk about them without getting angry. <laughs> Although the one I do have the fondest for is the old Christopher Lambert sci-fi version where Beowulf is in space <laughs> and Grendel is a space monster attacking a spaceship. It makes no sense, but that's what makes it fun. And because this is after Christopher Lambert was successful with The Highlander. Where you know you have a Belgian actor playing a Scotsman, and then you have Sean Connery, a Scotsman, playing an Egyptian with a Spanish name. It made no sense when you think about it, but it's a movie where people cut each other's heads off. So it's fun. But the canon is something that we can critique. Classic works of literature, we can critique. You're going to find ideas being put forth in the text that you disagree with. You're going to find people being treated in ways that you will say is wrong. And you know what? There's a good chance it probably is. Because we have changed as a culture, our morals have changed, our values have changed, and it's okay to point out problems in the text. It's okay to say, well, this is problematic. Now, doesn't mean we should stop discussing it, but it means we should acknowledge these things and talk about why this is problematic and why it should have even been problematic in the day. But this is what I plan on having us do. The next two weeks for sure is Beowulf. I want to say, um, we'll, yeah, we'll finish up Beowulf the Wednesday after Labor Day. After thinking of holidays next. We'll finish up with that after then. You will see when you look at next week's module, the reading response question for Beowulf, should you choose to do that, is posted. And you'll and that will come due the, the day after we the class period after we finish discussing Beowulf. But again, you will choose the three that you want to do, but once the due date for that specific piece has passed, you can no longer turn that one in. So I want to make sure that that's clear. And again, this has been a this is a general. I'm starting off slow. I'm giving everyone time to decide if they want to stay here. I think it's going to be a fun class. I'm going to do some different things with you guys, and we're going to read some literature that most people don't get to read because it's often not seen as as highbrow, but it's fun. 
and it gives you, and because it's not highbrow, it really gives you a sense of the average person. So we're going to read some things that would have been scandalous in their day, and we're going to laugh and go, that's not even PG. But during that time, that would have shocked some people and gotten some, oh, You might even, if, we're, if, if things work out as I planned, you might even learn the origin of the term bodice ripper. Because it's a little bit older than you think it is. But next week we start with Anglo-Saxon period. We're going to bring, we're going to be, we're going to be doing Beowulf. I am going to be also reading you some Beowulf in the original Old English. So that way you can hear how the poem would have sounded We'll talk about oral transmission because if you look at it, Beowulf is a 3,182 line poem. At some point, it was oral. At some point, it was delivered orally. Was it delivered orally all in one sitting? Likely not. But we'll talk more about how that might have been done starting next week. This was just an overview reminding you of what plagiarism is, some general specifics on MLA. Again, I will have the link to the Purdue Owl up by this afternoon. And then letting you know where we're going to start. And just hopefully giving you some confidence that you can analyze and critique literature. You don't have to agree with big people. You don't even have to agree with me. If you can support the claims, I hold your, I hold your claims as valid. And sometimes... If you disagree, it might show me something in the text I've never seen before, which will help future students because I'll have new perspectives to bring to them as well. So, don't feel compelled to agree with everyone you read, but consider the fact that you can do this. This isn't scary. These texts might seem a little daunting at first, but we're going to do this together. I'm going to show you, especially for Old English, Anglo-Norman, Middle English, and Early Modern. I'm going to show you how we go through and read and understand and interpret. The sad thing about reading, like say, Elizabethan drama, you get one play. With Shakespeare, you all, you are Shakespeare, Marlowe, Ben Johnson, if you take an entire course on them by the end of the semester, you can read it like it's nothing because you start to get a feel for understanding the language and how it works. But with one, by the time you get a feel for it, we're doing something else. And it's a different time period, and it changes. So it can be a challenge, but we're going to do this, and we're going to go through it together. You're not gonna be, you, you will be expected to read the sections before class, but I will help you by illuminating some things that I feel are important. And I hope that there are things you feel that you're curious about, that you want to know more about, that you thought were, were important, that you will bring them to class, mark them, make notes, and then we can talk about those sections too, because that way what we talk about is the actual discussion of the text. And I know that that, can, that sounds scary, but if you, ever talk about a, if you ever talk about a TV show with your friends, you've done what we're doing. But we're just doing it with really old stories. It's no different, it's just the subject matter's changed. Are there any questions on any of this? Nine, five, three, all right. Get me hints.